I like to run. Well, that's not quite true. I like to have run, you know, in the past tense. I don't enjoy running while I'm actually doing it, but with the end of daylight saving time, it becomes more difficult to run outside because it gets dark so early. And for safety reasons, I don't like running in the dark. So this past week, I did something that I haven't done in a long time. I actually went to the gym. And you know how you have to scan a barcode when you're at the door of the gym? I did that and naturally, the attendant uh, working at the front desk noticed and said, welcome back, Brent. I see it's been a while. And I'm like, oh, how embarrassing. I feel judged. And I thought this was supposed to be a judgment-free zone. <laughs> well, I guess I should be thankful. At least she didn't say, welcome back, Brent. You look like someone who really needs to, you know, work out at the gym. <laughs> But when I got through working out, I had the same thought that I always have when I return to the gym after, after having been, a, been away for a while. I thought to myself, I'm really going to get in shape this time. I'm going to do it. I'm going to get swole. I'm going to get to the point where I can do more than one pull-up. I can do multiple pull-ups. I can't wait. This time, it's going to be different. This time... I'm really going to stick with it. Never mind all those previous resolutions that I made. This time, I'm actually going to follow through. And when we read today's scripture, we ought to wonder if the Israelites are feeling the same way that I feel when I go back to the gym. Are they thinking, this time it's going to be different? This time we're really going to stick with it? This time... We're really going to be faithful to God because, well, it's not like these same Israelites had not previously resolved to be faithful to God. For example, this generation of Israelites to whom Joshua is addressing these words were alive back in Deuteronomy chapter 30 when Moses was giving them his farewell sermon. They undoubtedly nodded their heads in agreement when Moses said very similar words to Joshua. Moses said, Today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God, obeying him, and committing yourself firmly to him. That's what Moses challenged them not too many years earlier. And maybe you're thinking, well, I guess they did it. I guess they were successful. They, they turned over a new leaf once they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. They changed. I mean, sure, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents who wandered in the wilderness for all those many years were constantly committing idolatry, constantly rebelling against God and Moses, constantly grumbling against God and Moses, constantly losing faith in God, constantly doubting God. Sure, that's the way it was for previous generations, but this new generation, they got it right. They are different. 
And you might be tempted to believe that if you just look at chapter 24. Except, look at verse 14. Joshua says, Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Verse 23, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. Wait, put away these foreign gods? What the heck are they doing messing around with foreign gods in the first place? Where did these idols come from? How long have they had them? And the answer is, they've had them for a long, long time. Their parents had them. Their grandparents had them. Their great-grandparents had them. In fact, notice Joshua refers to gods that their forefathers served some 40-plus years earlier when they were in slavery in Egypt. That means that their parents, their their grandparents, or their great-grandparents brought these idols with them out of Egypt. And then their forefathers uh, worshipped them and passed them down to their children and their children's children, who up to this very day have been worshipping these idols. But it's even worse than that. Joshua says that some of these idols came with God's people from beyond the river, the Euphrates River, in the land of Ur or Mesopotamia, where Abraham was from and where he first received the call from God to go to the promised land hundreds of years earlier. These gods, in other words, have been in the possession of the Israelites all this time. And uh, there's kind of a funny story um, way back in Genesis chapter 31, which involves Jacob and his family, his wife Rachel. Um, You can read about it on your own time. But basically, Jacob and Rachel and their family and their servants and livestock, they are prepared at finally, after 20 years, um, to leave Jacob's uncle Laban and to return to the promised land. And on their way out the door, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, steals her father Laban's household gods. These were probably some of the same idols that have been passed down from one generation to the next ever since that time. But why did Rachel steal them in the first place? Why did she want them? Did did she not believe in the one true God that her husband Jacob was supposed to be worshiping? Besides, after she took them, Jacob knew all about it. And it's not like he said, we need to burn those things. We need to throw those things away. You should be ashamed of yourself for committing idolatry. What are you doing? God alone is the one true God that we should be serving. He doesn't do any of that. So, in spite of their idolatry, God just keeps on blessing them with one blessing after another. And he blesses the rest of the family. And consider this. April preached a few weeks ago from Exodus 32 about how when Moses was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, 
his brother Aaron and the people of Israel became restless and they fashioned for themselves a golden calf and began worshiping that, that idol. Before Moses interceded for Israel in prayer, God literally threatened to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, to start over, to hit the reset button, to have, to have Moses become the father of a new covenant people. My point is, at the same time that God was threatening to destroy the Israelites for worshiping the golden calf, many of these same Israelites had in their possession other idols from Egypt and Mesopotamia, and they were worshiping those idols too. Think about how unbelievable that is. One, one commentator points out that Israel was committing idolatry during years of the greatest blessing and the most amazing demonstrations of the power of the true God over all other gods that the world had ever seen. Yet even here, at one of the greatest peaks in Israel's long history, it was necessary for Joshua to urge the destruction of these idols. Do you hear what he's saying? While the Israelites were busy worshiping idols, God was showering them with one miraculous blessing after another, proving to him that he alone was God, not their worthless idols. They saw God send the ten plagues. They saw God part the Red Sea. They saw God feed them with manna, this miraculous bread from heaven in the wilderness. And even the generation to whom Joshua is speaking remembers eating that manna. They experienced the miracle of crossing over the Jordan on dry land, that they watched God bring down the walls of Jericho with just a trumpet blast. They watched God give them one miraculous victory after another over their enemies. They knew who God was. They knew he was real. They experienced his power firsthand. Yet at the same time, they worshiped idols. And they passed them down to their children and their children's children. My point is, if all these miraculous and powerful events aren't enough to convince Israel to forsake their idols, how much confidence do we have that they'll be successful this time? Are they like me at the gym? <laughs> yeah, this time, I'm really going to stick with the Lord. <laughs> well, the good news is, if you read to the end of the chapter, the Israelites end up doing okay this time. They remain faithful to God, at least until the end of their lives. And... Um, don't get too excited because, well, their faithfulness doesn't carry over to the next generation. And if you want to depress yourself, spend, spend an hour or two reading the next book in the Bible, the book of Judges, and you'll see what happens um, in the generations that follow the death of Joshua. But, but I think I know why this current generation was finally able to put away their idols and keep them put away because Joshua convinced them in the sermon that he preaches in this chapter. 
He convinces them that, they're, that, that if they're going to put away their idols and serve God successfully this time, it won't be because they tried harder. It won't be because they had more willpower than they had last time. It won't be because they finally convinced themselves intellectually of the truth of the doctrines of, that, that Moses and Joshua have taught them. It won't even be because Joshua forced them to make a choice for God. Choose this day whom you will serve, no matter how sincere their choice was. No, inasmuch as Israel successfully put away their idols and served God, they did so because they took to heart the message of Joshua's sermon, most of which we didn't read in today's scripture. So if you have your Bibles, and you should, glance with me at Joshua 24, verses 2 to 13. Uh, we skipped those verses. Joshua is speaking God's word to the people, and God is recounting to them a brief history of how Israel got to this point, how they made it to the promised land. Just look at one verse, verse 3. God says, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And it goes on. If you look at the rest of what God tells Israel, you'll notice a theme. The sermon is about what God has done. I did this thing for you, then I did that, then I did the other thing. In fact, that little word I appears 18 times in just 10 verses. This is God talking, not Joshua. And God says I a lot. Why? Because God is reminding his people, this is not about you. It's not about what you or your ancestors did. This is all about me. I did all of this for you. Verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Or look again at verse 2. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. They served other gods? Who's they? Terah and his two sons, Nahor and Abraham. Abraham served other gods when God called him. In other words, when God went looking for someone to be the father of his people Israel, which he was going to bring into existence. He, it's not like God looked all over the world looking for even one man among the millions who was already serving God and loving God and being faithful to God. Not even close. Because even if God tried, he wouldn't be able to find such a man. I mean, what does God say about Abraham? He was, along with his brother and father, serving other gods. Abraham, in other words, was a pagan, an idolater. God did not choose 
Abraham. Even Abraham, God did not choose him because he was worthy of being chosen. No, God chose him first and made him worthy. Did you hear that? God did not choose Abraham because he was worthy. God chose him first and made him worthy. This is the way God always does things. This is grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. And even when we work hard for God, when we serve God, when we do good works for God, as many of us did yesterday at the Rise Against Hunger event, it wasn't really us doing it. We really don't deserve the credit, according to the Bible. Paul says, for example, in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you might say, well, that sounds like you have to work for your salvation. You have to earn it. You have to earn God's grace. Except the very next verse says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, both to will and to work. That means that even the desire to work for God, the desire to serve God, comes not from your own free will, but from God himself. Remember Tim Tebow. I love Tim Tebow. I think he is the greatest college quarterback to ever play the game. In college, I'm talking about. But a lot of people back then, even people who could not deny his greatness on the gridiron, made fun of him. They made fun of him because he was just so out in the open with his Christian faith. And um, they made fun of him because of something called Tebowing. <laughs> Remember Tebowing? For him, whenever he did something amazing on the field, which was often, he would kneel on the field right then and there and say a prayer of thanks to God. And I understand that these gestures, they risk being some kind of showy display of piety, which Jesus condemns. But that's not what it was for Tim Tebow. This was Tebow's way of saying God deserves all the glory for what just happened. God made this possible. Because Tim Tebow understood, as Joshua understood, as the people of Israel were starting to understand, and as I want you to understand, that success doesn't come from us. It comes from God. Pastor Steve Brown is a Presbyterian pastor and seminary professor who's famous for saying outrageous things about God's grace and God's unconditional love. Outrageous things that also happen to be true and biblical. <laughs> One time he said, when I was growing up, I just knew that my mother loved me so much. 
that even if she found out that I was a serial killer, she would say, well, they probably deserved it. <laughs> I mean, and that's terrible, I know. But I'm sure it was true. That's the way our mothers love us, or at least that's the way they ought to love us, right? There's nothing we can do to make our mothers stop loving us, and that's a good thing. Pastor Steve went on to say that he knew that his dad loved him in the exact same way. His dad loved him unconditionally. But psychologists tell us that that's unusual. Unfortunately, most of us children don't experience our father's love like that. Most children, according to psychologists, grow up believing, at least to some extent, that our dad's love for us, or our dad's love, um, that, excuse me, that our dads love us only as much as we live up to their expectations or meet their expectations. And so we, we, we live in fear of disappointing them because, well, then we're worried that they won't love us anymore. Now let me ask you, how do you think your heavenly father loves you? You learned it in Sunday school probably that God loves with unconditional love. You've heard that before. And I mostly agree with that. I would only change one part. I would say that God loves us with one conditional love because we only become God's children in the first place through faith in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. That's when we're adopted into God's family and become his beloved sons and daughters. But assuming we meet that one condition, that we are God's children through faith in Christ, we can be confident that God loves us without any further conditions. By all means, I believe that. But I think that this is just about the hardest doctrine in all of Christianity to believe, that God loves and accepts us by grace alone. No, I take that back. It's not hard for me to believe that God loves and accepts you by grace. I mean, I believe that just fine. I mean, you're wonderful, or at least you're a lot better than I am. Why wouldn't God love and accept you by grace. But what's very hard for me to believe is that God loves and accepts me, even me, by grace, without condition. Well, that's why I need to hear the same sermon that the Israelites needed to hear in today's scripture. God is telling Israel something like this. You didn't make it to the promised land, because of anything you did. See, I've known all this time, I've known for the decades that have passed since I sent Moses to liberate you from slavery, I've known that you were carrying around those idols, worshiping those idols. You didn't know I knew, but I did. And I'm telling you now that I knew. You can't keep your sins a secret from me. So that means I must really love you 
to have brought you into a land on which you have not labored and given you cities that you have not built and allowed you to eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. And I did this all the while knowing that you were cheating on me with other gods, serving them, loving them, trying to please them. So now that you know that I love you with unconditional love, maybe it's time for you to put away those idols. Obviously, I've proven to you that I love you even with your idols, but it's time to give them up. It's time to start loving me with your whole heart and throw those worthless things away. Again, getting back to, to Pastor Steve and his sermon, um, he was talking about the, the doctrine of sanctification, which is that long, slow process of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and changing us from within. And he said, you know, I'm better than I was, but it's only because I realize I don't have to be better than I was. Did you hear that? I'm better than I was, but it's only because I realized I don't have to be better than I was. Because he understands that God is going to love him anyway. God is going to accept him anyway. Nothing he can do will change that. Isn't that good news? That's the radical grace of God right there. And I think that's what the Israelites finally grasped when Joshua preached this sermon. Look at how much God loves us. I think that just melted their hearts. And I hope it melts yours too. But listen, you still must Choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. God wants you to choose. And then his word promises to give you the power to change. Choose and then let God change you. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Toccoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Toccoa First. We have live in-person worship every week and we also have online worship. Please see toccoafirstumc.org for more information.